I think the thing that I think about when I think about what do I love most about clubs even now, I think it's like walking in to a party. It's the best. Like walking into a party that you belong there. And you know, like tonight is going to be the best night of my life. Money, success, fame, glamour. Money, success, fame, glamour. Hello, I'm James St. James. Welcome to Night Fever. I'm here with my co-host, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Uh, we're celebrating New York nightlife. We're celebrating the legends, the nightcrawlers, the party monsters, the club kids, the disco dollies, everybody who made nightlife fabulous in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Our guest today needs no introduction, but she's going to get one anyway. She is forever queen of the night. She is a Warhol muse, a Mugler muse, a supermodel. Uh, author of the best-selling Boobs, Boys, and High Heels, or How to Get Ready in Just Under Six Hours. Uh, she is a yummy mommy uh, of three. She is a makeup mogul, and she is uh, a YouTube sensation on her show, The Brill of It All. I give you the wonderful, the magnificent, the iconic Diane Brill. How are you today? Oh, I'm so good. How could I be better? Look what I'm looking at. James Fenton, <laughs> heaven on earth. Hi, babies. Hi. Hi. I want to sort of hijack the conversation before we start and tell you about how I came to know of Diane Brill and what she meant to me as a, as a teenager and how she influenced my life. I, we're going back to 1984. Little Jimmy Clark is stuck in Saginaw, Michigan, but he's been accepted to NYU, and I am so excited. This is just – I know my life is going to change. I have long been obsessed with Andy Warhol, and I had read Popism, and that was like an ur text for me. And I – the idea of – it girls and super Warhol superstars was just in my head. It was, it was, it was incubating. And I was thinking to myself, well, if they're it girls, then by God, there can be it boys. And I'm going to test that out when I get there. And I am, leaving, this is the spring and I'm leafing through Vanity Fair. And I come across a very small thumbprint picture, a little black and white picture. And it says sting and Diane Brill at limelight. And Something about your face, something about that image hit me like a fireball. And it was it was like I did a double and a triple take. And I looked at it and I said, Diane Brill, file that name away. That's an it girl if I have ever seen one. That there's something you didn't look like anyone else that was in Vanity Fair in 1984. I just get that out there. So I have that in my head. I'm I'm going on a bit, I know, but we have to get this out. That all of a sudden, about two months later. Hello, hello, the Cars video debuts on MTV, uh-huh. Andy Warhol is directing, and there's that girl, there's that girl from Betting Fair, and it's that Diane Brill, and the hello on your decolletage, right, <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, 
there's Warhol, there's Diane, they're together. In, in very short order, there's John Sex, there's Constance, there's Ming Vaz, there's everybody who is part of the tribe, right? That I, and this is, this is a clarion call to me. This is like the mermaids calling to this, the, the, you know, sailors. I am being pulled <laughs> by, like on a lasso to New York and I've got like two months to go and I am like literally out of my mind at this discovery. So then- Wait, you- planned all that you had that all organized before you arrived in the city well yeah yeah i i was like i said all of this is is like calling to me telling me that there's that there's a scene that's happening and that there are these people there's john sex there's diane brill there's terry toy i'm seeing all these people i go i drive two hours to a neighboring town that has an interview magazine (laughs) at the newsstand and i get it and i open it up and there's by god it girl diane brill menswear designer so i'm like okay now we're now we're getting somewhere now we're learning about this woman and I am leafing through the magazine, and in the Christopher Makos party pics, there's Diane at Private Eyes. There's Diane at, at her birthday party at Danceteria. There's Diane in the fountain at Area. And by this time, I'm telling you that by the time I got to New York and I saw you in the club, you were bigger in my mind than Madonna, Annie Lennox, Boy George, Cindy. Everyone put together. There was nobody more fabulous or more famous on the planet than Diane Brill. And I must have come at you like a cannonball. Just <laughs> you were bouncing. Fangirling. You were bouncing. You were just like bouncing. You had your little lunchbox and you had all this hair and this fabric clothes with a lot of details and flow and you just kind of like bounced up to me and you know, yeah and you were like Diane Diane and I was like oh hi you know and I was like do I know him do I not know him I was like, yeah and then it just kind of has continued until this day actually that's how it went I felt I always knew you I met you and it wasn't like I met you it's like I always knew you kind of thing it was a continuation <laughs> but I remember that with your lunchbox and your your bounce and and all your Jamesness, and yeah, like who is that guy? <laughs> Who's that kid? He's adorable. I remember it was at Danceteria. I think Frankie goes to Hollywood, but performing for the first time in New York City, the ground floor of Danceteria, and there was a huge amount of yeah. excitement for Frankie goes to Hollywood. But Diane walks into the room, and everyone turns. It was like an electric moment that the entire crowd just stopped and i think that was the first time i saw diane it was i remember that i remember that so clearly because it was like as if diana ross entered the room and we were like oh my god but you know i was curious about like the way you used to and i remember that night also just watching you walk around the room and you were so gracious and so you did that thing and like, I, I'm just curious, when did you know you had that? Like, were you always like that? Because also, by the way, like, we're like, we're gays. We, no. you know, what? We end up in New York. You know, it's kind of like, no, but like, it's sort of, there are, like, for a woman to, to come, like, it's a completely different storyline, I think, for women, especially back then, to come and own New York and, what does that take? And when did you know that? I'm sorry, I'm jumping into this, but I have been curious no, no. about when, when, when did you know you were that girl? 
I don't know. You know, I mean, actually, I've thought about it because, you know, there's been some time between then and now. And I thought about it. And I I think I was just probably the happiest person in the world to be there because I finally was where I belonged with people I belonged with, with people that understood me, that got me. I didn't have to explain it. Everyone I met was interesting, whether it was their look or that they wrote something or they thought something interesting or they said something or they smelled a certain delicious scent or everyone had a something that I wanted and I wanted the intimacy and the closeness and, and, and Nina Sarko, my, our good friend for, for many years, who's unfortunately not anymore with us, but um, she said about me one time, she said, you know, when, when someone meets you, they feel like they're the most important person in the world and you give them that feeling. And I said, well, actually when I'm talking to them, they really are. And I, it's authentic. And that's probably what opened so many doors for me. I think people felt seen, you know, and I, at the same time I felt seen and I was, I've been looking for you guys all my life. I was in Tampa, had a great family, great brothers, but I was never understood by the others outside of the family. Never, never understood. And it's terrible to never be understood. It's not at one point you just need to be understood. And I walked into the city and it was, you know, Immediate. I walked into the city and I just got applause and hugs and kisses and everyone was very so happy I was there. And obviously I was so happy to be there. And you know what? I kissed and hugged and touched everybody. Because that's me. I, you know, and there wasn't like a thing of being gay or not gay or can I sleep with him or not was not any kind of issue or whether I could hug him and kiss him and touch him or not. You know, and I think maybe that's probably been the response across the board to people's that I, I don't have that. I don't need that editing, you know, a goal. I don't need the goal. I just need the soul. I just need the soul. <laughs> I, I want to do a little origin story here because you, you mentioned that, that you, you know, started off in Tampa and then after Tampa, you went to London for a little bit. And I imagine this was during the early MTV era, because I know that you became friends with Adamant and ABC and Duran Duran, yeah. and you were you did you did clothes for all of them and everything. So, yeah. And then you went from London to New York. How did that all? How did the Tampa, London, New York thing happen? That is actually true what you said, but I didn't meet those people when I lived there because when I lived there, oh, I was okay. doing another world. I was, I just was. Like, I'm here from Tampa. Where are my people? You know, I'm looking for my tribesmen. And I was looking all over the place, but I didn't know about Steve Strange. And I didn't know about the post-punk and new wave. I knew about the music, but I didn't know where the actual people were. And not. I just wanted to be, you know, in fashion and be fabulous. And, you know, I was holding on to some sort of Studio 54 idea, maybe, and, and Halston. And I was th thinking of things like that because I wasn't in New York during that time. And I just really... I was walking down the street and I thought to myself, I said, oh my God, I have to get my shit together. I need a job. I need to do something. What am I going to do? I look fabulous, of course. I always work very hard on that. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm in London. What do I do? So a guy goes by in a Rolls Royce. I think it's the I think it's a, a chauffeur because he's driving the, the thing. So the guy goes by and I, I'm like, wow, I wonder who owns that car and like, that driver's cute. But I went, and the driver stops and starts talking to me. And I'm like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm talking to him. Why not? He was cute. He was my age or whatever. And then I kept walking and I go into the bank. I go to open 
a bank account. They go, no, you can't. And they blah, British, blah, you're not allowed or whatever. That's so British. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I need it because I had just gotten a job at Estee Lauder. I was doing makeups, which I just lied and I just did it. I jumped in because I could do my friend's makeup. So I thought I could do it at Lauder and I could. And I just got a job at Lauder. So I said, okay, I've got to put somewhere to put the money. What do I do? So then the guy goes, he runs in and he goes, oh, hi. And I'm like talking to the chauffeur. If you'd like to open an account or anything, just take my card and you can just give it to them and you can open an account. I'm like, yeah, okay, sure, I will. So I went to the teller and showed him the card. The guy, the, he left the bank. They were on all fours, like, 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 you know, on four, that the guy turned out to be like the king of whatever. And, um, and they opened up the account for me, like immediately, I guess they thought I was the latest squeeze or something, but I wasn't. And then I, I obviously, hard, I contacted him and I got a job working for his company. So I was buying and selling old things. Like, uh, he'd buy a, a lot of, uh, of coloring books, like 20 million coloring books and 7,000 sofas or, you know, Barilla pasta, you know, you know, seven truckloads and buy and sell stuff. So it was great because I learned that whole idea of buying and selling, which you need in New York. Huh? I mean, you have to always buy and sell something in your life, but you certainly need that in New York. And, and then I, when I got to New York, that's how I started working. I walked into Trash and Vaudeville. Do you remember that on 8th Street? Yes. Sure, yeah, so of course. Trash and Vaudeville, Pat Fields, and all these people were advertising in interview, and I'd seen them. So I just walked in with like, with like duffel bags full of little rock and roll buttons that were like groovy at the time. People put them on their leather jackets and um, and old vintage shoes and shirts and things I found. I used to buy out old warehouses full of stuff and just, I don't know, I was very creative. And I'd buy and I'd sell everything. And all of a sudden I had like $10,000 in cash, which would be like having, you know, $200,000 in cash in your hands now. And I thought, okay, I'll move. And I just moved. I just turned around from being basically deported from London. I didn't tell you that. Uh -huh. To just living in New York. And then I had money that I could start subletting until I could find an apartment. And then I started buying and selling uh, warehouses full of, of clothes, which, you know, cost $5,000 back then. You could buy a whole warehouse for $5,000. I walked into Pat Fields and I was like, she was so mean to me. She was just like, <laughs> she was like and believe me, you know, beehive, liner, lips <laughs> some vintagey thing because i was selling vintage clothes so I, every day i'd buy some like fabulous cocktail dress from the you know 50s or whatever and heels like fetish shoes in the day you know james i used to do that i'm fenton you remember oh i know yeah yes and then yeah. um so i walked in with my stuff and she's and she was really horrible with me and then she said okay i'll take it off I was like, okay. <laughs> so then I, I could then move to New York in a way and just set myself up and, and start developing business concepts and everything, which were always small time, but, but, um, and hand to mouth and everything. But I lived very big in a hand to mouth way. I went everywhere I wanted and met all these people I never dreamed I would have access to. And not just famous people, you know, famous people are always exciting and everything. Famous people are, you know, have stories to tell. Obviously, the more experience and the bigger your world, you have more to say, generally, I would say. But it was just finding somebody to love. I, I just fell in love with everybody. I, I loved everybody. It was real. What were the clubs that were were happening then when you first moved to New York? Was Danceteria open? Was that the 
the the one yeah, there was a little dancer they're like the pre danceteer and that's where i met rudolph and there was also okay mud pre danceteria um club 57 but it was kind of over I think it was closing soon or something. Studio was sort of on the way out. Xenon was there, but it was stupid. You know, I went once or something, but it didn't matter. <laughs> and then things, you know, were starting to pop up. I want to, um, you say pre, uh, pre-Densiteria. And I have heard legends of Pravda, which was Rudolph's Club. And it was one night, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Poor Rudolph. Poor Rudolph, he just, you know, you worked so hard to open up that club, and it was one of the few clubs that had his own money in it. And it lasted one night? It was one night. Pravda was open for one night, and then it was it was illegal, and things happened, and the whole thing was completely squashed, totally squashed, and never opened again. But people still talk about Pravda. Ten years later, people were still talking about that one night. It must have been a hell of a night. Amazing. Yes, absolutely amazing. You know, the, the excitement, if you remember the, the opening of, of Danceteer or of Area or of Limelight, you know, opening is always a wonderful thing, right? It's hopeful. It's like the beginning of something wonderful, and you're and the whole scene wants to like continue because normally clubs come when one club is starting to falter a little bit and going down and the energy is reducing and then a new one comes and then we all sh- shift to that one. It doesn't mean you don't go back yeah. to the other club, but the highest energy is in the, is in the new very often. And I think that's what Ariel learned. Ariel learned very early on that to keep renewing that thing, you have to every month have a new yes. have a new opening. And yes. they, they, they learned that lesson very early. You've got to keep making it new. But I have to say, Rudolph, Rudolph was the big, I mean, Eric, God bless him. I mean, you know that Eric, Serge, those folks, I mean, they're brilliant. Ariel was a wonderful time for me. But, you know, that reinvention thing, Rudolph was big on that in danceteria i mean to reinvent the different floors and then to have the different areas and there's the roof and then i remember once there was a roof party and it was all like white tablecloths and fancy dinner and all that on the roof of danceteria which was quite rough and you could actually fall over it's a miracle and thank god it never happened i don't know how no one died and then it was there were i wanted to get down to the dance floor and the elevators would never work elevator was going up to heaven and down to hell they never worked it was always like such a hassle to get anywhere. And I said, I had, you know, fetish shoes. And I saw someone climb over the over the roof and one of those little skinny ladders, those little metal ones that haven't been repaired since 1924 or whatever. And they climbed down the thing, opened the window and went in and I did it, James. I did it. I went into my heels and I climbed down the thing and I went into the second floor to go to the party and I climbed back up to get back up to the roof. Terrible example. If, if that had gone wrong, we might never have had a Diane Brill. <laughs> I know. Oh my God. Think of it. And then I think I would have landed in the place where many years before, uh, after we buried a, a bomb. So we had a 19... Uh, 1940s military bomb without the workings inside. So it was a casing of a metal bomb. How do you call it? Yes, it's a bomb, a metal bomb. We opened up the casing and we had like, of course, Andy Warhol, Keith Haring, uh, me, James, I don't, Fenton, Randy, I don't know if you were involved. Many other people, I think Madonna even, had added something to this time capsule and we were going to take it and bury it. So we took it and we buried it on the ground where I would have landed had I fallen in the ground and we buried it seven you know, years ago. A few ago. years ago, I remember reading about a bomb scare in Manhattan and they dug this up. I don't know, <laughs> right? They thought it was a bomb. 
And they probably blocked off the entire city block thinking that it was going to blow up. And then they opened it and there's Diane and Madonna and John Sex. <laughs> yeah, there was like we had all put our memorabilia in there and they buried it for I don't know how many. 30 years. And then they, that's what happened. It was a bomb scare. And then they shut the whole, and it was all over the papers and everything. And then I think John Argento, who still lives uh, near the city came out and, and, you know, was waiting to claim it. I think the police still have it, but inside, I wonder what survived my underwire. I wonder if it's still there. You know, I have like my recollections. It's funny because my experience with nightlife, I always, like we're always sort of a little bit on the outside watching and I never really felt, felt like we penetrated the inner sanctum. And I was curious, especially the, like your, the, your early years of being part of the nightclub scene, like what the social hierarchy was like. Randy, you and Fenton, we would never have imagined that you didn't feel part of the inner sanctum. That is really funny. no, but we also always had day jobs. So like we always left early, but I am curious, like from your perspective, like how, just cause I do remember watching and watching like the paparazzi follow you no. the way you would cross the room. No. And it was always just, <laughs> and you did always do that thing. You were always so gracious to people, but I wondered, was it like that from day one? And, and did you, how did you navigate your way through that? My mom and dad used to have like luau's in the backyard. My father was in real estate and um, had a had a lot of properties, and that made meant we could have a lot of stuff. And we had a pool, and nobody had a pool, or you know things like that. And so when you're lucky enough to be that kid in the neighborhood, that means all the parents and kids come to your place. So, and my mom is British. My mom's British and she's an amazing dancer. She's from uh, Havana, Cuba. She was raised in Cuba. So most of her life was spent in Havana. She's an international student. She she's a, was a journalist for many, many years. She's 94 now. Shout out to Noni. Hi, Noni. And uh, she just has always been a, a big influence on me and a very gracious, uh, a really gracious chick and very forward thinking. And uh, she's, you know, she's the real influence. I, I can't say anything other than that. But I always understood what it was like to be at a party where you, you'd be at the party and you were not recognized. I certainly knew that because I was in Florida. So what would Florida do with the Diane Brill? It doesn't mean anything to Tampa in those days. Maybe now. But in those days, it, they didn't need someone like me. There was no purpose or reason for a gracious person or a hostess or an inclusive person or a scene builder, what would that mean? It meant nothing. So I was always not included when I, except a few close friends, but I never felt part of it. And it's not like I wanted to be part of it. Like, it's not that I thought, oh, this is better than what I am, but you still feel a, a feeling of excluded. And I thought, I'm never going to do that to anybody ever. I'm never going to exclude anybody. You know, even if like, you know, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I think I stopped drinking and any drugs and all that when I was like 19. So I just like stopped and through the whole years in New York, I never had a drink of, I may have had a glass with me, but I never, I toasted, but I never drank it. I, really nothing. So that was great because that helped me to be really clear headed. But like if somebody came over to me and they were like an asshole or something, which didn't happen much, people were pretty gracious with me, I think. But if somebody came over like, oh, I'd go, 
it's really nice to see you. What was your name again? And then have them say the name. Then they, oh, okay, Bob. It's really nice to see you, Bob. Could you come up back another time when you're more yourself? And I learned like all these like traditional, like polite lady things that were magical. They were magical because they really kept that behavior away from me. So the people that came to me, I never, I rarely got that. I got just, you know, love and kisses. But but it, there was a, like a sex in the air and it, a leftover from the 60s and 70s sexual revolution that, that we don't have now. And there are more boundaries yeah. now. I wonder if people how you shut down, you were talking a little about shutting down, but if, you know, you dressed sexy and provocatively and that was, you know, you, it was body positive before we had a term for that, but was there, that was unusual. Did men ever cross that line and how did you shut that down? You know, you know, and, and do you find that it's different now? Not in the clubs, of course, because, you know, in the clubs also there was, as I said, it was like so incredibly inclusive. And also we all sort of known, knew in a natural way. There were certain things that are just stupid or, or wrong or uncool or ick, and we just don't do it. And we didn't. You know what I mean? We learned quickly. Oh, it doesn't work. Like we were paying attention. I think we all were paying attention and we were yeah. finding ourselves, you know. And it wasn't just the youth that made it so, because I had friends of all ages. I didn't think about it now, but I really did. I mean, I was friends of Timothy Leary, for Christ's sake. He was like, I don't know, 50 or something during those days when we were 19, 20. You know, it's weird, right? I mean, it was a different, I never felt age different. Andy, did I ever feel he was fatherly with me? Never. Diane, was there a lot of sex in the scene? But back then, was yes. it was it very was it, it was sexual or sexy? But was there a lot of was there a lot of fucking or were people just being fabulous? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It was like I would say fabulous was like the whole thing that was going on, and that was the real energy of everything. But in all the fabulousness comes a different opinion, a different thought, um, something you never could imagine a different look, um, a, a color that all of a sudden you start talking about whipped cream for hours and how wonderful whipped cream <laughs> is, or, or you start, you know, you tell a story, you make up a story or look at my party trick. I mean, all the fun we had just interacting and exchanging everything. And then of course, sex wasn't necessarily, you know, that it had to be a hard edge of sex, but like relationships that had sex in them or sex that were or, or were limited relationships that were pretty sexual were everywhere too, I would say yes. And there weren't so many defined rules like gay, straight, blah. It was all a little bit blurry. Hot bottom verse. Blurry. Yeah. Oh my, oh my God. I have no idea how that could possibly be a world to live in. I mean, I know everyone has their, but I would be very frustrated with that where I wasn't allowed to do this and I could only do that. And uh, like all those taking, actually, I think sex is a lot more doing than, than rules than having a list of behavior. It's more like experimenting and it's an evolutionary thing. It's always moving forward. And sometimes it moves back. Sometimes it's even boring. And then you got to, you know, you know, get inspired and a new idea and something else coming. It's like an art form. Sex is like an art form. And then if you take it and you have these rules on an art form, like you're only allowed to use those colors, you know, only those colors. I mean, maybe you'd get really good in, you know, yellow and blue or purple or whatever. But, you know, Christ, there's so much more going on. 
what was it like meeting um, Rudolph? Was that an instant connection? Like, because you were so often seen together. Like, I mean, I always just assumed you were a couple, but you tell me. We were married. We were married. No, we were married and we were a couple. Yeah, we were married and we were a couple. We were married for like six years. And, um, well, that was, you know, that was, of course, it had to be my singular biggest influence of that time had to be in my relationship with him and with him because he's the guy who would call me up he goes hi baby it's me listen the queen is the king of spain is in town and wants you to come um to this dinner tonight and you've got to make it i've got you sitting right next to him you've got to make it and like tons of messages like that he was really orchestrating a lot of those kind of big things like even the terry nuclear table he orchestrated that I got invited to that party and that he got invited to that party and that I was sitting next to Mugler and then Mugler started booking me for his shows. And then I was at nine years of one of the muses of his house of, of Mugler modeling for him. So Rudolph did a lot of that. I mean, Andy did a lot for me too, but I would say Rudolph, boy, he was pivotal in everything. And imagine he had this club and he needed an ambassadress. He needed a, a queen. And he could walk around and be the king. I could be the queen. He could organize everything, make everything happen and get everybody in. And I could just give you drink tickets and kiss you and hug you and tell you how wonderful that you are and how I adore you. Fabulous. And it was a very good team. But when I first met him, it was different. I, you know, I was new in town because he met me kind of right away. And, um, and I was, again, at the Mud Club. But not that I lived at the Mud Club, but somehow a lot happened there because it was my first in. And... Um, I was, there was this Belgian guy. This guy looked like a Serge Cleric drawing. Like he was a cartoon 1940s detective, like film noir, you know? He had a trench coat on, a gorgeous, big jaw, angular face, hair, like, you know, he did his thing. And he looked at me like, you know, like that, and the cigarette. I mean, I was, could have been Bogart. It was amazing, but he wasn't copying anybody. It was his thing. Oh my God. I was like, what? And I would chase him around the mud club. He would run. No, he would run from me. Like he would look at me, stare at me. I'd chase him. He'd run. It was just ridiculous. And finally, I, I, I tried to like, get to him and I go, why are you always running from me? He said, because you remind me of, you're very powerful and you remind me of my mother. And I was like, okay. So then I realized when I turned around the other way, realizing this is not the, the detective for me. There's always that guy that was always behind me, chasing me, and I was running from him, and that guy was Rudolph. So I, I went, Whoa. <laughs> and then I wound up in in um in one of his clubs, and I he asked I asked him what he's doing here. He said it's my club, and I was like, oh wow, that's cool. <laughs> and I, and uh, started, yeah, and then we started dating. A lot of the romance happened on staircases, and I think even when I was modeling, I'm very good at staircases, like a big staircase. I always thought. Got to look straight ahead, don't look down, and just walk into the room. So when I was walking in, I was like thinking whipped cream covered thoughts. And I was whipped cream covered thoughts <laughs> walking into the room, looking up and around and smiling. You know, so I was making an entrance even if no one was watching. And eventually people started to watch, I think, because it, I meant it. <laughs> it was so sincere. So talk a little bit about like the evolution of, of, of the Diane Brill look. Well, keep in mind that it started with a, a basic thing is that I have a particular body type that was not necessarily the body type of that moment. Um, I'm blessed, at the, especially at that time, with a very small waist and really big boobs and a butt. 
right? Now it's normal. You see Kim Kardashian injecting herself and making that shape and all that stuff. And it, it seems normal. But in those days, it wasn't quite defined. I probably was one of the, if not the first, or one of the first in the in the loud people of Manhattan that were doing that. And um, uh, it was really because of the fashion. You know, I'd go into the, the, the um, rag houses that were called and they were like, giant bales of like 1950s or 1960s little cocktail dresses or men's tuxedos from the 1940s and these beautiful gabardines and barely worn from estate sales or whatever. I would go in and my job was to go in, my business was, to separate the good from the bad, see what was perfect, have it cleaned or re-dye it or or recut it, whatever, and then resell it. And that's what I would do. So every day was a shopping day for me to find beautiful couture dresses from another time from you know these from women from the 50s that were built more like me because they were wearing corsets which I started quite early I started finding corsets and and uh, and bustiers and I was wearing them as tops because I was just built for it and I mean and va 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 boom and the points and all that it was just made for me and so before Madonna and all the other folks uh, from the scene started wearing that stuff, it was me. And that's for sure Gautier or anybody making it. It really was me. And I can say that it's the truth. And it was from shopping all day wearing that stuff. So, you know, after a while, you see what works. It was fun to see somebody in a Jane Mansfield look coming into the party. And, you know, Rudolph always said, you look like Jane Mansfield, you look like Diana Doors, you look like, you know, Doris Day, whatever. And those kind of things were, I was a young girl. Oh, you look great with your hair up. My hair would go up. You know, it's the, his influence was actually quite strong in that way. And I hadn't noticed it. And then, of course, I ran with the ball. Then we could do the biggest hair, the highest shoes, the corsetest waist, the biggest boobs, the sticking out booty, sparkly everything. You know, when I wear those clothes every single day and night of my life, nobody looks like that except anyone who ever watched RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> now, yes. <laughs> so when they used to say, you know, what a Madonna when they saw me or Lady Gaga, now they go, Rue! Rue! <laughs> like everybody says Rue. And, and, and with the lockdown and everything that's happened, nobody is wearing a layer of anything. So it's only me. So a lot of people say, you know, well, you're a mother of so many drag queens. And I'm like, well, thank you. You know, that's so funny. I, what a nice, you know, discovery to say that. And then I think about it and I'd say, well, yeah, sure. I guess. Yeah, that's really true. Totally. Totally. When I was a little girl, my mother used to go to, you know, Salvation Army. They'd have all these old, you know, bridesmaids dresses and things like that. And they were 50 cents each. And she'd buy the whole thing and then put it in, a, in the garage. And then all my girlfriends would come over and jump into the thing and put on all the dresses and, you know, and play. I was, I'm half Jewish, so we pay like Queen Esther for Passover or whatever, whatever <laughs> holiday, or I know that sounds like it's a little insider, or we'd play like, you know, Queen of the World or Barbie or Millie the Model or whatever. And we'd all put on those little dresses and do that. And it, it was, you know, really a lot of fun. And I think that that continues today. And my children are like that too. Um, my son, he's straight. I know it's really funny and everyone laughs, but, but I say, you know, it can happen. <laughs> it can happen. That, that it can happen. But my son is straight. My, my daughters are they're, uh, very much into glamour and they, they do like, you know, they do their undered look and their natural laughing girl, whatever look, but they love to get dressed up. 
I have to ask you though, what was Andy Warhol really like? I've got to get your take on Andy Warhol because like you Well, he did have a big he did have a big penis and he did have sex. Just I want you to know that. I want to say that because <laughs> no one ever says that and I think everyone should really know that and I think it's something wonderful and you know they always try to paint him. The reason he tried to be like he was a little not autistic but he was a little socially challenged to begin with as a child, I'm sure. I didn't know him as a child, but I'm sure he was. And, but when he grew up, he learned certain things could keep people away and certain pe- things could pull the people in that he needed. And he would just do that persona whenever it was necessary. It's not like you're, you're at, I was at Cornelia's with Andy and we were watching Dynasty before going out. It wasn't being that he would then be, you know, all withdrawn and weird in the corner. Of course not. You know, he always sounded as he sounded, Diane. You know, he always had his voice, but he was not really an awkward person. He had awkwardisms, but he wasn't really an awkward person. And he was actually, to me anyway, very generous with me. And I think, look, he wanted to be with me too and others like me. You know, he wasn't a vampire. He was hip, cool, groovy, wonderful, amazing, interested, uh, creative, inspired, inspiring. And so he liked to be around who was who were those people that were had the most sparkle going on that night? He wanted to be around them for good reason. Why wouldn't he? And of course, we all wanted to be on him. So it was very uh, moving relationship. She, he was always trying to get me to have sex with Jean Michel, though, with Basquiat. And you know, <laughs> it was incredible. I was like, "Annie, you got to stop it." You know, and Jean Michel, we would be like, "Oh my god, <laughs> like your dirty uncle, like." Diane, you should. Why you can have sex? We have to have sex with Jean Michel. You know, Diane, <laughs> Jean Michel, don't you want to fuck Diane? You should really fuck Diane. And I was like, really, we can't. It's not going to happen. We're like, no, it's just not going to happen. But uh, <laughs> it was, it was really great to me. And I was in all his shows. You know, all his. MTV shows and all his uh, things he did with uh, Mark Ballard and and, uh, and Don Johnson and Fremont and everybody. And, you know, he always included me in everything that he did and going out and, you know, I don't know. I, I loved him and I, I missed him and I, I'm sorry that it's over for us and uh, because it was like a wonderful, non-sexual, wonderful friendship, romance, whatever, which I have to say, I think that that's also happens a lot to me that I have gay men that are friends, that we often have a certain kind of boy-girl thing that is not fag-haggy or whatever you call the girl version, the other version, other side of that. It was just kind of very natural, like children, like innocence. Like- I, I think you've talked about Keith Haring being one of those people that, that, Keith, that you and Keith had that. Yeah, we definitely did. I mean, we could have had sex. We could have. But somehow... It wasn't necessary, even though he was very gay. He wasn't into women or anything like that, but it could have happened, but it wasn't really needed to be. We just had everything we needed the way we were. And I, he's not here to say his interpretation, but I think he kind of adored me. And, you know, it was kind of like two kids. Like, you know, when, when you're little and you're in second grade and you hold the hand of somebody and it's kind of cute. It was like that. It was really very, very... Nice. I loved him very much. And I was lucky enough to say goodbye to Keith. And that is a, a beautiful thing. It's a miracle. I didn't really get to say goodbye to Stephen Sprouse. And I'm really, that's a shame. And Andy, I didn't say goodbye to Andy, but it's okay. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah. 
People love that relationship. Everyone wants to know. But now I already told you the penis thing, so what else do you <laughs> Let, let's talk a little bit about those peak years in the '80s when it was when it was Diane, Diane, Diane everywhere. And some of those really, some of the best parties that I think that I've ever been to were in that period. Oh yeah. And I think of like yeah. the Williamsboro Bridge party, you know, the outlaw party that Vito threw. I think of your New Millionaires Club at the Palladium. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! It was oh my god! That was so incredible. I mean, Dolly Parton yeah. was there, and of course the Duran Duran boys. Keith Haring was in the show. Curtis Sharp, who was no longer with us, God bless him, but he was the first big lotto millionaire in New York. That was cult hero. Oh my god! I remember the New York Post. It was you and the numbers of the winning ticket. It was just the most iconic cover of the New York Post ever. Like, there was no headline for Diane. It was just your picture and the numbers. It was like, oh. That's true. There was no headline, just the numbers. That's true. And I remember it was a gold dress with the money going down right. the, the middle of it, right? dollar bills, and we just sewed dollar bills into a fabric and we put it in the gold dress. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. And the luck, wait, listen to this. Talk about like, this is your world in your business. I was doing David Letterman that night. So I was on the cover of the New York Post the day, the night that I was doing the David Letterman show. I remember that. Yes. So it was like, talk about whoa. going in with the wind at your back. I would yes. talk about, yeah, talk about like, nobody, you're not going to like deny me my title, Queen of the Night tonight, David Letterman. <laughs> no. <laughs> Oh my God, that was so exciting. It was really a very exciting thing to do. I really, I had no idea it would last that long. I would no idea that he would last that long. Wow, it's pretty amazing. But um, yeah, that was very good for me. And I know people thought like that he was, he was bitchy or whatever. And that was the nature of his character. You know, he was that guy and he had to be a little provocative and be a little like jokes about yeah, he, you know he did the same thing with i remember with tama and with sandra bernhardt he always had that sort of like jokey relationship with women who maybe he was a little threatened by or i i don't i don't know what it was but but you you got the best of him and i thought that i always thought your appearance there was amazing it was really i I enjoyed it. And I dressed the band, you know, and did all the menswear for the band and all those things uh, I forgot and things like that. That was really, yeah, that was very cool. I really loved that. That was definitely the sort of the vibe of that whole time then. What do you think about when the club kids came along and the whole Michael Eilig movement? That was so wonderful in the beginning. It was just such an amazing thing. I know Rudolph felt he was kind of the, the godfather of, of of you guys, and he was the godfather. He did everything he could to make sure that things went well for you. He believed very much in your scene and opened up the thing. I always felt part of what you were doing, but also separate from what you were doing. I felt included, but also it was fine when you did things that were in your genre of things. That was cool, too. Um, I loved it. I just was so excited about it. It was just beautiful looks. I mean, every day, some other thing, you know, put like, I know Lee Bari and all these amazing people and so many of us every day tried our best to do something else. But I mean, you know, obviously you're seeing James of all the club kids. This was just gorgeous. You know, I think everybody who understood, who came to the clubs with a really authentic reason, 
to, to find what we were talking about, understood it immediately when we met you guys, you know, as a team. I knew you before, but when I met you as a team with everybody together and, you know, Michael was spectacular. I mean, it was unbelievable the looks he would come up with and the vibe and the and the way he would carry himself and all you guys would be bouncing around. You were very bouncy. It was a big team of bouncy, <laughs> bouncy beautiful boys. And, you know, you were amazing. And it, it was just spectacular. And I'm so sorry that drugs entered in and fucked up people and, of course, all the horrors that followed. But if we could separate just the beginning years of where that came from, it was a beautiful thing. Michael, for all of his faults and everything that happened afterwards, those beginning years, Michael loved to be the host. He loved to be the person throwing the party yes. and being the one making everybody happy yes. and giving out the drink tickets, like you yes. said. And just he, he enjoyed that role. Yes. And that's what sort of made the beginning years so special. So was that there was, everybody, everybody there was, was there because they wanted to be a part of the party. You know, You know, I made a mistake. I think it was during that time. When was it? it was Palladium? Um, I think when you know Rudolph and I were were a couple. We were. I actually married my husband, so he, he was my boyfriend, right? So he's my boyfriend, but he's German, so he needed to stay in the country. So I married my boyfriend at like I, I was like twenty or twenty one or something. So I didn't tell my mom. I didn't, we didn't tell a lot of people because it was kind of weird to be married at that age, and it was strange. It was you know good to be the boyfriend girlfriend, but not to be married really. I didn't want that really but then i did it because i wanted him in the country and safe and we did it you know and in some years it was not it wasn't to be anymore i think we were it was just it wasn't to be so we weren't going to be together so then we broke up he started going out with girls and dressing him up like me now that freaked me out completely he would take a girl that looked sort of like me in some way and there was a girl julie jules i know she was a friend of yours beautiful girl right beautiful and you know and he would start getting dressing her up like me i mean, I don't know if he took her and bought her wigs or shoes or clothes and then she ran to the ball but then she was copying my looks done and you know in another way not to the level that she didn't have the experience i had with styling and all that yet she was not newer to it but, but still i was fucking so pissed off about it and so i never really got to know her. <laughs> i never got to know her because i didn't like that he had done that so it wasn't her it was him and i remember it, it was very vertigo <laughs> yes yeah it, it, was, it was like the movie vertigo yes where he's dressing her up like you oh my god but i think that i really think that she loved you i really think she I'm did sure. it out of like respect i'm sure she didn't know why i was mean to her i wasn't mean no no i wasn't <laughs> I wouldn't be mean that's not me i wouldn't be mean but why i withdrew from her and i didn't react to her she probably wondered why that was why well i also remember and i'm just i'm going to put the name out there i'm just going to say the name and let you run with it if you choose to or not but eat some mueller well yes i do but you know eat some mueller became dangerous you know i fired her when i found some long scissors in her bag with a long point and she brought them into the into the office and she wanted me to see it. And that day I fired her because I thought I was in danger. She was your, she was your assistant who then started wearing rubber dresses and blonde hair and, and no, but that started was a stock dressing. Story. That's a star story, James. That was scary. In the beginning I was like, yeah, I got my hair pieces here. I got my rubber skirts there. I gave her sources and everything. And when I hired her, she looked a lot like Suzanne Barsh because she used to work for Suzanne Barsh. So she had a kind of British Swiss accent. She had dark curly hair. And then slowly she started to morph into me. 
And then things happen were really tough, like Madonna and I have always had a bristly relationship. We'll talk about bristly. And not because of me. I think it was really one-sided. She just was always a complicated girl with me and always kind of crabby and competitive and silly and all that. But I have done such mean things to that girl without even knowing it. This is one that was really bad. Itza Miller said to me, oh, um, I just got invited to Madonna's baby shower, but I'm not going to go. And I thought to myself, wow, that's a low blow. Madonna invites my assistant and doesn't invite me. The next day they call me and they go, Diane, how could you do that? Madonna reaches out with to have you in her baby shower and you don't even show up to the baby shower. I said, but she invited my assistant. And they said, why is she inviting your assistant and not you? No, that didn't happen. So Issa was stealing my invitations and going to parties more or less like me. Yeah. So I was then did a major diss to, to uh, Madonna. And then over the years, I did more things like that. I didn't mean to. I haven't seen her in ages. I mean, now if I saw her, I think it's like, I would just love to see her and smile her way. And I would have so much to talk about and all those stories and all those years and backstage in Mugler and all of the things that happened. And I don't think that anything would come into play because most of our lack of getting along was just misunderstandings and a, a lot of events that made us not connect, that created this weird thing. I do sort of feel that everybody... That, that all the people that we might have had beef with 20 years ago, it all falls away after a while, doesn't it? I mean, at a certain know, point, you can't hang on to an, an anger from the 80s in, in the 2020s. I hope that I said fun things. I hope that I, I said encouraging things. I hope that I that I gave people a hope and understanding that things that we went through and what we know with our decades of, of glamour um, is not limited to a time period. It, it's, you know, yes, a lot of people came together at the same place at the same time. It means something, but it can happen again. And it's happening right now somewhere. And it's up to the creative people and all the people that really have a need to be part of something wonderful to find those people and find the tribe online, wherever you find them, that's fine, but meet them. And when the time is right and, the, and you can touch them and look at them in the eyes and mean it and be authentic. And your authenticity is always going to be changing and reinventing. Don't be afraid of it. It's okay. Just be authentic and connect. They're looking for you too. Oh, you're giving me goosebumps. Just so, it's so inspiring. And I think, I think everything you say is so true. And I think maybe that's why people are so interested in that period now in New York. It's like, I guess living it at the time, it was special, but I don't think any of us ever imagined it would come to be so fascinating to people decades later. Well, but also I think in talking, in talking with you now, it just, you have that kind of timeless, inspirational energy. It's so, it feels like it, this afternoon has felt like being on the floor and watching you walk yeah. into a room. It's really been special. It's, it's, you, you still got it, girl. Oh, thank you, Randy. <laughs> you, baby, baby. When you have it, you have it. I think when you have it, one has it, it doesn't go away. It's like, tag, you're it. Yeah, no. Oh, love, 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 love. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, thank you so much for coming, Diane. It has thank been you. really special. I, I, I love reconnecting with you. And I, I hopefully we can have you back at another time and we can do it all again. And Please. just have, in fact, you can be the, you can be the co-host. You, you will have I'm you ready. every week. I'm ready to, to come people. and be the co-host. You just call me. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> I do. I love you so much. And I just thank you for being our first guest. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. I'm so inspired. Thank you very much. Kisses to all my favorite boys. Kisses, kisses. Money, success.